This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. You're listening to my interview with a certified sci-fi legend. He's been in some of the most recognizable work since the 1980s, such as Inner Space, Total Recall, Gremlins 2, Star Trek, and we were so lucky to have him join us for Stargate SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe 2. From The Companion, this is my conversation in sci-fi with the one and only Robert Picardo. A quick note before we begin. If you're a big sci-fi fan, you're going to want to listen to the full conversation for members only. Trust me. And it has never been an easier time to join. Help yourself to a free trial, and if you like it, become a member. You'll be helping out me and our small team deliver these fun interviews and amazing stories, all ad-free and sponsorship-free. Thank you so much. Bob, you did something that, that I, one of the reasons I went into television was to try to write for Star Trek. Can I, and I lived in Canada and we wrote shows about, you know, horses and, and hockey. And you got to be in one of the most iconic shows uh, in television for me. And I, I, I caught a little bit of your, um, uh, that David Reed Zoom with the, the reunion thing. And, and you were, one of, one of your comments was that you were completely uh, unconcerned about getting attached or, or, or uh, labeled with a sci-fi thing. Uh, and you're right, obviously, but uh, I embraced it. I wanted, it's exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. Well, um, I, I kind of fell into science fiction. Um, growing up, I remember I was more of a, you know, a horror fan um, than either a fantasy or a sci-fi fan. So I wasn't really knowledgeable about Star Trek when I auditioned for it. Um, I, I remember as a kid watching Lost in Space because I had a crush on, you know, Angela Cartwright, I think. But, but uh, I was not really... I, I I wasn't aware of what made Star Trek special. I hadn't seen enough of it, and uh, and and you know I auditioned for it like any other job, and I kind of discovered quickly, uh, you know, in my preparation for once I had been cast by watching several Next Gen episodes that the producers sent me directly, so they sent me their best shows, and uh, and I just was delighted at the quality of the storytelling, and I finally got to get what apparently you got as a much younger person. I started to get what it was about science fiction that, 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 that really d- appealed to people and developed such loyalty in a fan base. But you also played a really interesting character. You, you got to play a, a character that wasn't human, but in some ways ended up being the most human person on the ship. You know, uh, you, you, you had a humanity about your character ultimately that, that was that was actually quite moving and really good. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I've, been, I've heard my fellow cast members say that my character's arc was the best of anyone's, primarily because he started with so little personality. He was basically a blank slate. It was a new technology, so I, I, didn't, have to, I didn't have to obey any of the rules in Star Trek. Usually a, a Starfleet officer had to behave in a certain predictable way he had to be stalwart brave and true and my character because he was designed for a very narrow purpose that the moment he was 
first of all, left on all the time when he was designed only for short-term use. And then when he was put in situations which were not necessarily medical, he did not have to behave the way you expected a Starfleet officer to behave. And that gave me a tremendous amount of freedom to break the rules and to have all these negative qualities that the fans were not used to seeing in Starfleet uniform. I could be very self-absorbed, very uh, arrogant, very petty, very even cowardly in situations. And that, that was what made it such a delight to play. Eventually he would rise to his better self, but he, st he often led with his negative qualities. And yeah, I think yeah. that's what I, made I him fun. I would say we may, have, uh, we may have borrowed a little bit of the doctor uh, when, we, uh, when we wrote McKay for Atlantis. Yeah, mm -hmm. except he was human to begin with, so he had far less. <laughs> well, so he years. says. So he says. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, David. David, uh, just as a sideline, and I've said it before, he's one of the very few actors who just makes me laugh while we're shooting. I mean, on the set. I mean, I was always I was in danger sometimes of, of breaking character because David just was so funny. I've never seen anyone who has turned whining into an art form <laughs> the way David Hewlett has. He just, it's, he, 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 he explores every, every crook and crevice and extremity of whining in such a delightful way that, that he just, uh, with, that, with that a, he, with a big energy too, like with a big energy. <laughs> yes, exactly. He, he, he so, owns it completely. Mm -hmm. And he, yeah, he has no shame um, about, I, I think the doctor eventually became a little uh, ashamed of his pettiness after the fact, but, uh, but, but David Hewlett's character didn't really, he, I never saw him really be ashamed at his, when, it, when he behaved badly. In my, the last Atlantis episode that I wrote was sort of an exploration of his, uh, of his inner, you know, what makes him tick. Uh, and, and, I actually talked about you about it when I was talking with him on this podcast because you you gave a very moving speech uh, about Alzheimer's. Do you, do you remember that? You, yes, uh, I do. Uh, and at the time, my father had just been diagnosed. Right? I don't know if I, if you knew that at the time. So that was part of why I did it. But but it ended up being an, an exploration of of his character and how and how even faced with the very very you know death is right here. He's still lying. You're absolutely right. He couldn't. He couldn't help himself. He just. He just kept going. He just kept going. Well, that's a man who knows himself. And yeah. uh, the, to get back to the doctor just for a moment, because I, I've I, I've often said this in uh, in other interviews, I really didn't understand the character when we shot the pilot. It was all brand new to me. I knew. I think what got me through with such success in the pilot is what, as I have what my two daughters call resting bitch face. <laughs> I, I, look, I look unhappy um, when my face is just relaxed and, I th and, and even a little, bit, um, a little bit angry or contentious sometime when my face is just at rest because of the, the big dark eyes and the sort of, I guess, the, the hanging jowls or whatever the heck it is that makes me look unhappy. And, uh, and, and slightly disdainful. And I think that, that that's what really got me through the pilot in the first couple, ep uh, uh, until I began to really understand what the character's issue was. I, I understood him from the perspective of the producers. They thought it was funny to create 
a willful piece of technology. Remember in the 90s when Voyager first premiered and we all had our home computers and everything and we were all having our hardware and software issues. It seems sometimes that our um, our technological helpers, our computers and all of our, you know, our early cell phones and whatever had a mind of their own and they worked sometimes and they didn't work other times and you had to figure out what the problem was. So here we had this 24th century um, future medical device, a, a computer generated holographically projected doctor who was meant to have the capacity to learn, adapt, and develop empathy for his patients. But it seemed early on that his only focus on feelings were his own. That it was all aimed inward. You know, am I having a good time? Am I being respected the way I feel I deserve to be? So when I finally got it that 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 he was this the, he was this he had this incredible power of information every piece of data every piece of personal experience of 24 different starfleet doctors that had been programmed into him he had this enormous power of knowledge and the complete vulnerability that any individual crew member could turn him on and off like a light switch and that that pissed him off i mean that's that was the core of his of, of his moment-to-moment um, -moment anxiety that he would be snapped out of existence while he was doing something or he would be left in use when he had nothing to do, when he had no goal. So that, that anxiety that was the core of his, you know, bad humor, once that made sense to me, that, you know, that he wasn't being given the respect he felt he deserved for all of his brilliance, then that, I took that and ran with it. And then it became clear. It just, the character just started to play itself. And, and it was really uh, the birth, or what's the right word? The, um, the emergence of, of an AI, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, like a, a, a three-dimensional, actually sentient being as opposed to a program, which is where the character started. And and I, I think as a writer, and this is why again I I, I was jealous because you got to you got to play in a sandbox I always wished my whole career I got to play in. Um, but I can imagine being a writer and just wishing I could write for that character. I mean, it would be so much fun. Well, I remember the producers telling me early on when um, when they were taking pitches before Voyager premiered all of the pitches were for the different characters and right. the moment the show premiered all of their pitches were for my character it took the it took the audience just to see him once to get it and then I started getting these great stories uh, I of course was um uh, I could only be in the sickbay environment or on the holodeck because I had to be in a in, you know in uh, yeah. holo projectors had to be present so uh, by season three I remember Brandon Braga had me in and said, we have to, we're creating this mobile emitter device because we have to bring you into more stories. You know, he framed it as any good producer would as a compliment to me, right? Because uh, because the character was so popular, he wanted to be able to, it was a compliment. And, and yeah. at the time I'm thinking, I've got the plum job of the world. I shoot all of my scenes in every episode in one day <laughs> or two days. And suddenly it was like, okay, now I'm going to have to work like everybody else does. So, but, but, but it, but I was, I was, I was not only flattered, but I was happy to get to bring the character, you know, to have him be part of 
the full crew episodes, which before that he really wasn't. He was always, if it was a medical show and a lot of it took place in sickbay or if it was a holodeck show. But now he could join the crew on away missions and, and it, was, it, was, it really was fun to be able to interact with all of my fellow actors uh, much more often. In other scenes too, and in other environments, which, which the character often felt. So, like, and you played it really nicely because whenever you went in a new environment, it was like, like you'd never seen this before. It was brand new to you. And, mm -hmm. and you kept that fresh. And that was always something in Stargate that was hard for, um, for actors and us as writers to, to hang on to, which is, which is, guys, you're on another planet. I know it seems blasé by season five, but you're on another planet. And that's what you did with that character, which I really admired uh, going, you know, as you en encountered something brand new, you took it as something brand new. And, you know, that's not just in the writing. That was, that was something that you uh, imbued in the character. <clears throat> you also had a great experience, and I did too, of being on a show that lasted seven years. And that is pretty unusual in television. You get this family atmosphere. Absolutely. And also we made 25 episodes a season. You know, you, you, uh, uh, when I watched the first season of Picard, which I really uh, enjoyed, and then I thought, and, and I thought, wow, the production values are great and all of the, you know, the, the visual effects and the action sequences. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, they, cr they only cranked out 10 of these. We did two and a half times that many in less time or about the same time. About the same time, yeah. So um, we worked very quickly and we worked long hours. And, uh, and Kate Mulgrew, God bless her, is a miracle when it comes to line learning. I mean, she's just always perfect. She's the only actress I've ever, ever seen who doesn't carry a script to the set and never refers. I mean, I mean she might call for one word, you know, in, in over the course of a week from the script supervisor. But otherwise, she entered the, the set with everything in her head. And, uh, and I had huge admiration for that. And she was our leader. So, you know, she set a pretty high bar. That's important. I think it is important when, um, when somebody comes prepared and everybody else has their script in their hand, they kind of slightly, slowly put it behind their backs. <laughs> well, I we would have, hide mine. I had yeah. it, but I, I hid it very well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we had that experience on Travelers uh, in, in season one. I don't know if you've seen it, if you haven't. Please watch it. It's fun. It's a, a show that I just, I did my last show with Eric McCormack and Eric was like that. And, and, and it was really great to see him walk on set with perhaps the, the most dialogue and, uh, and all the young kids, like, cause some, we had a very young cast relative to him. Uh, and, uh, you know, with their three lines, reading them from the script. And, and I said to them afterwards, the only guy who, could get away with walking in on a script without a script doesn't have it and and you guys are all reading yours so maybe that's a little lesson and they they learned it they learned it pretty quick it's setting an example is, is a great is a great thing to do one little thing that you and i have in, co in common and of course <laughs> it's it's by no means in common in, in any re realistic sense but i i i spent uh eight or nine years in the theater before i started working you have have an ongoing theater and at a very high level, mind you, a career. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the theater. I mean, I, having just at your young age working with Jack Lemmon in tribute would have been like, talk about learning from the best. 
Well, um, it's It's an extraordinary experience to have had as a young actor. If I could wish an experience for a young actor, it would be to work with someone like Jack Lemmon who had been at the top of his profession at the time I met him for 25 years. He'd been a major movie star and a, you know, an accomplished theater actor and live TV actor before that. I met Jack at 54, I think I was, uh, I was 24. And we had the primary relationship in the play. It was almost a two-hander. There were five other characters, but it was really a father and son comedy drama. And uh, I had to really stand up to Jack. I was his unhappy son who believed he'd been a delinquent father. You know, he divorced my mom at a young age. And then the way that this, um, the, uh, um, the writer, Bernard Slade, uh, who became a great friend, uh, who we lost just uh, only a few years ago, a couple of great, years ago. Great, great writer. And Canadian, a great yes. Canadian. Yes, uh, Bernard uh, Slade uh, said to me, uh, at, at, you know, in rehearsal, he said, he's the kind of father who would send you five presents for your birthday and then forget the next two birthdays. Or he would, you know, do something nice for Christmas, then you didn't hear from him for two years. He was completely unreliable. And um, Jack, of course, is just such a kind and generous and thoughtful actor. You know, uh, I I remember early in rehearsal saying to him, Mr. Lemon, Jack, Jack, kid, call me Jack, please. All right, Jack, uh, if there's there's something you'd like me to do differently or if you don't like the way I'm playing something, feel free to, to tell me. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're too honest an actor to do anything wrong. You do whatever you want. That was, that was the extent of our conversation. What a compliment too. And, uh, and, and we just, we had so much fun together. We played tricks on each other. Can I tell a, a behind the scenes story? Oh. Whenever a show runs for a long time, uh, actors play games uh, with each other on stage. I don't remember, I think I started it. Um, I had a rubber vomit, as childish as this is. I knew that Jack checked his props every night. He checked the bar, because one of the first things he did was he would go to the bar on the set and make a drink. So I, I put this rubber, I would start hiding the rubber vomit in places where only he could see it. So it would be sitting on top of the cocktail napkins on the bar and different, you know, it would, and then the rubber vomit disappeared one day. And when I'm on stage with Jack and I opened my, my lens cleaning kit to clean my camera lens, the rubber vomit popped out of the bag and bounced on the floor. Now, Jack was like a little kid. He was so excited to see how I reacted that he broke character and started to laugh, right? Whereas he couldn't get me to laugh. So it became an ongoing thing to see if he could crack me up on stage. Okay. So this went on for, you know, mostly in matinees for a while. And one day the prop master uh, gave me a, a, a picture, like just a little tiny three by five picture that was incredibly dirty. I don't know where he got it. This is long before internet pornography, but it was, a, the way he described it was a couple, uh, a young man having lunch with a friend. I don't know how to describe it. It was too, <laughs> it was a couple engaged in flagrant delecta. Anyway. So I took the picture and put it inside a photo album. Now in the scene, what's supposed to happen is I'm giving my dad, Jack's character, a hard time. And he's handed me a a photo album and he's talking to me so he can't see the pictures I'm looking at. And And I'm supposed to take one picture out of the album and hold it and he comes around and looks at the picture and his line is, oh, you never knew your grandmother, did you? So I've got this completely disgusting porno picture where grandma is having fun with 
with uh, some very amply endowed young gentleman. And um, so Jack comes around and he glances at the picture and he would get this little one second gleam in his eye that said to me, okay, kid, so you want to dance, huh? <laughs> like it happened in a second. It was a flash in his eye that only I could see that he was, he was, he was picking up the gauntlet. Okay. So he doesn't do anything. He goes, you never knew your grandmother, did you? And he talks and talks. And about a minute and a half later in the dialogue, he's supposed to say, so what would you like to do? We can go have lunch. We can go to a museum. We could look at more pictures of your grandmother. Like that, right? Now, I don't laugh. But the other six cast members are off stage watching this whole thing. And, and this huge laugh comes in from the wings. And that makes Jack laugh. So they're laughing off stage. He laughs on stage at me. And he never got me to break. So I, uh, I, I, you know, and then after that, I think we gave up. But uh, that's one of my fondest memories of Jack, that he, he would love to play. He had that absolutely childlike delight in having a little fun while still giving the audience a great performance. We, were ha we had this little tiny undercurrent of something else going on that kept it very alive and us very focused on fresh, each other. Fresh, yeah. Yeah. Well, was, I, I mean, what, how deep in the run was that? How deep in the run was that? Oh, that was pretty late in the Broadway. We did it again in California, but I would say that in the Broadway run, which opened in, in June and ran through the end of the year, that was probably, I want to say, you know, October, November, when we closed, you know, the week before Christmas. So it was pretty, it was about three quarters of the way through the run. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's... Uh... That's that's still what a memory. What a great story, too. Oh my god! <laughs> no, but you. Uh, so you you uh, you love the stage, obviously, and and mm -hmm. I know you sing, and I know you play piano. There's a piano right behind you. Well, I actually um, no. That's just this is just a gag. I, I sit at the piano, gag. but I don't. I play the guitar, but you can't sit. You can't sit on the guitar, <laughs> or you can, but it's just not comfy. No, no, no. But um, you you you're still you're still doing the theater. You're still going going back mm -hmm. and doing it. And now, and going back and forth, I asked, I asked this a, a lot, Eric does it too. How, how difficult is it to, to jump from genre to genre and from form to form? How difficult is it as an actor to, to go into, you know, a stage and, and, cause it's a different energy. It really is. It's a different I mean, energy, but you, it's also a, it's a different process from day one. Yes. In the, for the benefit of your audience that are not, actors or, or perhaps have not done any theater, it's a very different rehearsal process. Uh, to start with film and television, you basically go in with your lines learned and then the director will stage the scene and, and then you're performing the scene within minutes of, you don't, you don't really get to, I mean, in, in an ongoing television show, in theory, you know your character quite well and how he would behave. But in a theater process, you sit around a table, you read the play over and over again for the first day or two. Some directors get you on your feet the first day, but that's unusual. Normally you read through the entire play twice on the first day of rehearsal. And then on the second or third day, you'll get up and you'll, and you'll start um, blocking it. You don't know the lines, the script is in your hand, and you kind of you know, the director often you'll read the scene two or three times and then it's like, where do you think you would start? You want to start on the couch over there, Bob? And how do you feel? You know, and you basically just start to feel where, the, I mean, the script gives you the location of the scene 
and some backstory on the characters, obviously, but then you stage it. And then, and usually by the time I've, I've staged a scene, that's when I start to learn the lines because then you've already explored how the character moves and where, where, when he might, when the best time to pick up this prop or to cross to the other actor, it all, it all develops organically. Are you, have you, start... you uh, how, sorry to interrupt. How, how often mm -hmm. have you workshopped an original play? I mean, the, the, it's a slightly different process even for that. Right. Well, I was lucky. I, I, a lot of plays, my first Broadway show, a play called Gemini, which is the fourth longest running non-musical in the history of Broadway, I believe, fourth or fifth. Um, uh, that play uh, was done at Playwrights Horizons. I replaced, uh, the, they brought in three new actors uh, out of the cast of, I think, seven. And, uh, and then we did the play uh, at a regional theater, then moved off Broadway, then moved to Broadway. So we workshopped that play quite a bit. Um, even though it had been through its first workshop phase without me. Um, and I was, I've been in, uh, Tribute was a new play. Um, I was in David Mamet's first produced play in New York, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. Wow. While I was, while I was still training, I was 21 years old. Love that play. I had luck with a lot of, with, with a, a lot of new plays. Um, one of the very first plays I did uh, in workshop was about Jack Kerouac. Uh, great production. I made friends in that. Uh, my buddy Joe Pantoliano, we've been friends for 45 years. He and I both played beat generation poets. Uh, Lane Smith played Jack Kerouac. I played Allen Ginsberg. That was a workshop production. And uh, so working on a new play is it very challenging for an actor because you often you, you'll you'll often improvise a scene if you don't if the, if certain dialogue isn't working. Sometimes the director with the playwright sitting right there will say all right, let's, you know, let's take the given circumstances here and let's just improvise the scene sometimes and then the playwright will go away look, having watched the improvisation and tinker with his lines, perhaps incorporate some of the lines that came in the improv. It's all very exciting. But when you have a fixed script that's been done before, a classic or whatever, you still do, you still, exp even though the lines are set, there's still a process in, in, of exploring, you know, the subtext of the dialogue that you get to do much more in a theater situation, film and television. In a good film with a good budget, often they'll rehearse for a couple of weeks, uh, depending on the nature of the material. Um, but it's, it's in television, you don't really get, the, the most you'll ever get is a script read through at lunch the day before you start a new episode. You don't yeah. really get a, re a theater-like rehearsal process and i try uh, to i try to include uh depending on the scene like if it's a if it's a tight two-hander I, I like doing a rehearsal day like mm -hmm. if it's if it may as well be a play it's mm -hmm. it's very helpful to to take that and to explore because you can get so much more out of the the day when you're actually shooting if you if you have that opportunity it's rare that you can do that. I, I, I agree with you, but you, you can find the time if, if you're of like mind with your. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, just the key scene. Sometimes like uh, on Travelers, we, there was a scene in, in season two and, and, and I said, and it, like, it was like an eight page scene. And, and I said, and Eric's was directing, it was only his second episode directing. And I said, you should, you should do a rehearsal day on this scene because it's the hardest scene 
and it's got to go bop, 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 or it's not going to work. And, you know, the other big difference in film and television is that, you know, that energy has to be, you can't impose that editorially. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you, it has to be on the stage. And, and I like, I like shooting and, and, you know, having that energy in a wider shot so that, so that you can have that stage-like energy of actors actually interacting and overlapping and, you know, literally having that cue bite that, that, um, that you can't usually do in traditional television. There was a, a, a Voyager episode, a very dramatic one for my character called Latent Image, where the doctor basically has uh, you know, the technological equivalent of a nervous breakdown. In, it, it was described by the writer Joe Minoski as a, a Sophie's Choice episode. The doctor has two, in a crisis situation, two crew members are about to die from the same, exactly the same problem, medical problem. And he has to pick one over the other and he picks the crew member that he knows better. And then he cannot resolve the guilt of having, by choosing one, he is, he is um, uh, by necessity commanded the death of the other one. And he believes that he's violated his Hippocratic oath. He's, and so he develops a conflict in his program and he keeps running through the same mental loop of the decision over and over and over again and, and just is going literally crazy. So I had a big breakdown scene in that. And I, I asked the director that two days before we shot it, Mike Vehar, I said, um, you know, I've got that big scene where I really have to rant and it's like a monologue. Uh, could we just go and we walked to the other set, we walked through it, we talked about it. I showed him what I thought I'd like to do. I had some ideas that involved that, uh, props that I wanted to throw as I started to get out of control. So I had to get his approval so I could go to the prop department and say, I need this, this, and this. And then all, but because he was willing and anxious to do it, the scene was so much better because we'd had a rehearsal a couple of days before he could think about how he wanted to shoot it. I could think I, I could associate all of the gesture with that big speech I had with what I wanted to do physically. So if, you know, and it, it, I know that it was much better than it would have been had we left it up, you know, to the morning uh, that we oh, went to shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's television is downright mean. And in that respect, and, and you, I can't tell you how many times, I've, oh man, I wish I'd thought of saying this <laughs> or suggested <laughs> this, but as the writer producer on set, you, you know, sometimes I think, and I tell young writers quite often, the best thing to do is to just shut up and, and let the actors and director, it's not your job. You've written, you've done your thing. It's, it's, it's the, now it's time for the director and the actor to, to find it, but man, it's a tough job. And being an actor on a television show is a tough job. You came into uh, uh, SG one as a guest character and became a, basically a, a series regular on Atlantis uh, eventually. And then, and you are one of the few people who were in all three shows. You were with us uh, over quite a long period of time, really. I mean, it was a number of years. What a great show. I hope you enjoyed this free 30 minute version of Brad's interview. Members can enjoy the full one hour interview right now in our member section. From the Companion, this is Brad Wright's podcast, Conversations in Sci-Fi. If you want to listen to the full episode, listen to previous interviews, read hundreds of in-depth articles from our writers and showrunners like Brad all on a weekly basis, 
then you can get all of that and more by becoming a member today. Just click the link below, and for a limited time, you can sign up to The Companion with a one-month free trial, and you'll get 50% off yearly memberships. Thanks for listening. Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out, because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate Masterclass. It's a Stargate Chief Master Sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked.